Welcome back to the Starbase Indie Podcast, where we talk to and about people who are inspired by Star Trek or science fiction to work towards hopeful futures in the real world. I'm here with Dr. Colin McKinney. Uh, Dr. McKinney, will you introduce yourself? Sure. I'm, I'm Colin McKinney. Uh, I'm an associate professor of math and computer science at Wabash College. Uh, huge Trekkie, huge nerd in many respects. Um, not from Indiana originally. I, I grew up mostly in Texas, kind of moved to the Midwest for graduate training and then, uh, then employment and found myself in Indiana and then very quickly found out about Starbase Indy and I've gotten kind of plugged into the local scene, if you will. So that's kind of my shtick. Excellent. Your academic specialties include ancient Greek and mathematics. Right. How do these things fit together? So they fit together because what I one of my research areas, maybe my original one, is ancient Greek mathematics. So namely looking at mathematical texts that were originally done in ancient Greek. Um, and in, in a lot of cases, they haven't been translated out of, say, Greek. Uh, or may, if they have, they've only been, say, translated into Latin or Arabic. And not a whole lot of people read those languages nowadays. So, yeah, there's all kinds of interesting things you can learn uh, about sort of the history of the discipline. So history of mathematics, I guess, is my, my broader uh, area. But, but the sort of Greek stuff is kind of my bread and butter uh, area. Um, yeah. Now, I understand that our understanding of a lot of sciences has changed over time. Has our understanding of mathematics changed since the Greeks were talking about it? Um, in, in many ways, yeah. I mean, we've, we've developed new techniques for doing things. Um, so, you know, algebra, for example, I mean, the, the very word algebra is, is of Arabic origin. So it, it certainly postdates the Greeks. So in many respects, you know, math has changed, but in many respects, it hasn't in the sense that, that pretty much everything that the Greeks were up to is still true, right? It's still, so math just sort of subsumes more stuff in the way that, that science sort of occasionally changes its mind. So, and in the Greek world, though, um, science and math are not really necessarily distinct things, uh, the way that we might consider them today. So, for example, astronomy in the ancient world was, was considered a part of mathematics. And uh, so that part of it has changed dramatically that uh, in some senses. So the, the Greek cosmological model has the sun or sorry, the earth at the center of the universe and everything orbiting it. And of course, that, you know, that worldview radically shifted in, with Galileo and Copernicus and, and all of those people much, much later. But the mathematics itself, a lot of it, it's still true. We've just added on and added on and added on and, you know, been able to solve problems that the Greeks posed, uh, but were unable to definitively solve one way or another uh, or explain why they were able to do some things and why they weren't able to do others, given the techniques that they had at their disposal. So you also describe yourself as a huge language guy. How many languages yeah. do you speak? Uh, well, English, obviously, and I can read and to some extent write ancient Greek. Uh, I took Latin in high school, although I'd forgotten a lot. I started studying French maybe five or six years ago, um, and so I'm okay with French. I mean, I was able to survive in Paris for a week without getting, you know, <laughs> snooted at or whatever. Uh, so, so I did okay that, with that. Taught myself a little bit of Klingon, not a whole lot. I'm I certainly think. not you know, like the, the Klingon language guys that are at the conventions and stuff like that. I, I, I don't know, you know, nearly what they do. 
and then I've, I've learned on pronoun is in your zoom profile and that yes. just can't tell you how yes. much that delights me <laughs> yeah so um and it was it's funny I didn't think to put it in there until oh this was a few years ago one of the one of the guys um you know uh darker colored hair beard little shorter i'm forgetting his name but he's big into the klingon language institute and he's always at the conventions was handing out the little badge things that said the my ribbon. pronoun is yes. you know yep that and, was alan anderson um, yep that's it that's it yeah and i didn't realize until that point that there wasn't a gendered pronoun in klingon you know there's there's other parts of klingon that that are well maybe not gendered but uh you know like the, the suffix for plurals takes into account whether it, you're talking about a being capable of using language or a body part or something else. And uh, so I was just kind of surprised that that Klingon didn't have a gendered pronoun. And so then I was like, eh, I'm a nerd. I'll put it in my thing along with the ancient Greek pronouns just for funsies. So yeah, not many people notice it. I'm going to have to, I'm going to have to update my, my Zoom profile. I really yeah. am. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Do you think of math as a language? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, 100%. Um, it's different than a lot of the other languages I just mentioned, but it has its own syntax, its own grammar. It's trying to express certain ideas. And in many respects, you know, the way that one becomes fluent in it is by attempting to use it and screwing up, you know, in the same way that you learn French by speaking French with people and reading French. You don't learn French by sitting idle at a desk watching somebody else speak French, right? It doesn't work that way. And, and math is the same way in that you have to be actively engaged in it. You know, then if you start talking about things like symbolic logic or computer programming, which you might call sort of related to mathematics, um, then yeah, they have their own syntax and grammar and stuff. So um, yeah, I don't, I don't know why you wouldn't consider them a language. I mean, I wouldn't order a math I mean, a, a, a plane ticket or, or go to a coffee shop and ask for a coffee in math. But there's there's other things that I could express with math. So math shows up in a lot of science fiction shows and movies. What is your favorite depiction of math or mathematicians on screen? Um, I think the, the best recent one that I can think of is Hidden Figures. That I think really did a good job of showing well, so many things about the, the, the characters and, and the book, I think uh, that it's based on fleshes out a lot more of the story and a lot more of the characters. But um, it, it, I think, showed in a relatively realistic way what it is mathematicians are, or some mathematicians are trying to do. I mean, granted that in that movie, it's very applied um, in terms of, of the what was trying to be done. You know, they were doing space, you know, orbital mechanics, but they get the details right. Goodwill hunting, that's maybe another good one, although a lot of the math that you see on the, um, the, the like chalkboards and stuff when he's doing things and they're all amazed, it's like, you know, second year undergraduate material, but, they, but it's at least correct, right? Those are, those are pretty two examples. There was also a TV show called Numbers mm -hmm. for, for many years that I really enjoyed because it was... Um, you know, the premise was that the, the two lead characters were an FBI agent and his mathematician brother and uh, who did consulting and, and tried to come up with mathematical models to predict where a murderer might strike next or stuff. And that was that I think was pretty realistic in the ideas. Um, 
I think what was unrealistic about it was the speed at which he was able to do stuff, right? Like you just whip out a solution in an hour and it's like, no, that would take a actual mathematicians months to kind of figure that sort of stuff out. So um, yeah, those are, those are maybe pretty good ones. Um, we don't have as cool toys like the physicists and chemists and stuff do. So we can't really blow things up, but on YouTube number file, for example, is a, um, a, a series that has a number of, um, you know, really interesting videos that uh, where they interview mathematicians and kind of talk about different ways of looking at stuff. And uh, uh, I found those to be really helpful and um, also in teaching because, you know, they can be really interesting to share with students and sort of expand their mind as to what mathematics looks like. And, and also, you know, who, who are the people that do mathematics? So where you've seen it on screen, where have you seen examples where it gets things either like spectacularly wrong or, spectac or surprisingly right? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I'm not sure off the top of my head. I mean, most of the examples I can think of stuff where it's spectacularly wrong is more related to like say physics or something like, and Star Trek is guilty of this too. You know, when the Enterprise goes flying by and it's like, like, no, you wouldn't hear anything. It's a vacuum. There's no sound. <laughs> you have to have a medium uh, for sound. Um, yeah, I'm not sure. Um, I'd have to think about that. Um, uh, and, there, you know, there's maybe another movie like The Imitation Game, but I haven't actually seen it. Um, I, I've missed it somehow. Are you up to date on Discovery? Uh, yes. Wasn't it math? I'm trying, I'm trying to remember now. because Maybe I have this oh, in my head, but wasn't it yeah, math with they were using to talk? At the at the yes. end of the that fourth season, yeah, with the the like light patterns and then figuring it uh, figuring out how that translated to it, it was both math and and also chemistry, right? Um, yeah, because it was like different different chemicals that would be associated with um, emotional responses and things like that, and um, that I thought was uh, was interesting and and certainly plausible, but also still being kind of in the realm of, of fiction. Yeah, no, that was, I forgot about that. That was, uh, that was pretty neat. Some of the ideas that they were going to put an equation to, I was just real curious exactly how they were <laughs> putting that in math. But Yeah, I have to go back and rewatch it then, because of course, you know, the first time I, well, first and only time I've watched uh, that season of Discovery, I was watching it as, you know, I'm unwinding after work and I'm not really putting my brain into to it the way that I would if I were really wanting to concentrate on it as a mathematician. Yeah, I'll have to go back and rewatch it. Do equations have emotional content for you? or Because I think of math as very unemotional, but is that true for someone who's studied it deeply and passionate about it? Yeah, they, they can in the sense that they elicit, like, you know, it's an equation that perhaps you're familiar with or you've seen before or that you know is beautiful in some way because it relates things together that are seemingly unrelated or because it's very difficult or in fact possibly even impossible to solve in certain ways. Um, you know, I can think of a, a couple of examples, you know, most people, if they had to think of an equation, would think of something like a squared plus b squared equals c squared, right? Uh, would, would be, you know, and everybody recognizes that, Pythagoras' theorem. Um, e to the i pi plus one equals zero is, is another one. And that one's neat because it gets, you know, four of the fundamental constants of the universe, zero, one, 
b pi and the imaginary uh, constant i all relate together in, in, in this very simple and elegant way that that you know nobody would have expected necessarily if you just randomly guessed and then you know other equations like um i find kepler's equation really beautiful but at the same time, incredibly irritating because you can only solve it numerically. Um, and that sometimes bothers me. But, you know, bends the brakes. There you go. So speak, yeah. Now, you've also done work in robotics, which definitely yeah. shows up in science fiction. So yeah. what have you seen science fiction get really right or really wrong about robotics? So, um, I think, you know, in the, the really right department would be where perhaps robotics could be, because, of course, science fiction is projecting way out into the future. And, um, and so, you know, I don't necessarily see a whole lot of, quote, wrong. It's just we're not there yet kind of stuff. In terms of what maybe people don't realize is just how complicated simple things are. And I think maybe a good example today would be, you know, movement of robots. So for example, you see like characters like data or, or other sort of synthetic objects or beings being able to grip things and not crush them, but also being able to recognize their environment. And that's so incredibly complicated from a, from a technical standpoint that, um, you know, the cutting edge research is barely able to get things to pick up different size objects, you know, that aren't identical or something like in a factory with this robot arm bolts this thing on the car and that's it, right? It can do that one thing. There's a, I think it was 60 Minutes or Dateline or one of those shows that had a, a segment on, um, I think it was the Boston Robotics group and they have some dancing robots and they taught this group of robots how to dance the mashed potato which um people probably don't know what i'm talking about it's it's out there pretty easy to find i mean the mashed potato is not exactly a common thing to teach somebody to dance right did it really i mean that's not science fiction but did a good job of, of illustrating you know just how hard seemingly simple tasks can be that yet a four-year-old can just do them right so yeah I heard a quote from a science fiction author who was asked, what would you do if a robot was chasing you? And his answer was something to the effect of, I would find a staircase and walk up three stairs and walk yes. up it. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah, no, that's, that's exactly right. Um, yeah, I think, you know, maybe, I'm not sure if this is going to be right or wrong, but the, the laws of robotics that Asimov, for example, uh, was made famous and and you see them in movies or the lack thereof in movies. So, you know, for every iRobot, you've got the Terminator and, um, right. uh, you know, talk about, I mean, that's maybe became robotics, but didn't start that way. Um, you know, I like to use that example with my students when I talk about uh, floppy disks and they're like, and, and then I tell them that people still use these and they're like, what? But, well, nuclear launch silos still use them because I don't know about you, but I don't want my nuclear launches controlled by Windows 10. So, um, <laughs> yeah. yeah, that would that would maybe not be so great. So, or because you know Skynet and whatnot. So, mm -hmm. yeah. Well, speaking of Skynet, have you seen the news story this week? About yeah, the Google story. Yeah, yeah. So, really what do you think of that? 
Well, I mean, it, it's interesting because the, some of the discussion I've, I've, I've seen about it is like, well, okay, does this thing pass the Turing test? Which Turing's sort of the original statement of the test was, can a computer, if you have somebody at a computer terminal that can only type and receive text responses, can they identify whether or not the thing they're communicating with is a computer or a human? And you could look at, at a lot of the output coming from this thing and, and say no or yes, right? It's really at the boundary of what do you really consider sentience? Because you know, some of the transcripts are that this engineer leaked, I guess, and that's why he's in such trouble, is a conversation where he's asking this, this entity, you know, like, do you consider yourself alive or do you have emotions? And, and the thing is responding back like, yes, I feel sadness or fear about the idea of being turned off. You know, one could argue that that is sentience. But then I, I think what we really have to do is take a step back and say, well, okay, well, when we say sentience, what do we mean and how would we judge that? And, you know, then we're into a very different, you know, we're into philosophy and, and uh, right. uh, epistemology yes. and, and, very, and, and ethics, you know, like, what do we mean when we say sentience and, and does has this thing met this bar or is it constructed sort of essentially, I mean, it's an AI, so it's using some sort of neural net kind of technology. Is it just that the neural net is associating patterns with words the same way that humans might? In which case, you know, one could very much ask the question, well, are we sentient or just <laughs> salt meat bags instead of electronic ones? Um, bags of mostly water. <laughs> Yes, ugly bags and mostly water, exactly. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it, it really, um, there's going to be a lot of debate over things like that, and, and rightly so, right? I think it, and it's going to be debate that's multifaceted and requires, you know, the intersections of lots of different areas of study and lots of different ways of thinking. And hopefully, in some ways, science fiction can inform the way that we have those conversations because... You know, we, we all have perhaps fond associations with characters like Data. And while this AI isn't Data, you know, we, we should maybe think twice about turning it off or deleting it or whatever, right? Um, so, yeah. So this summer, you told me you're working on designing an 8-bit processor. So yeah. why? Why is that fun? What do you hope to learn? <laughs> the, the reason I'm trying to design it, so I'm actually trying to implement a design for an instruction set that exists only in a textbook and that I use in teaching because it's simple enough to get the idea across without being overwhelming for students in a first course on, on computing. And so part of it is just like, I want to see if I can do it because why not, right? And then, you know, I'd like to maybe actually build it in some way, shape or form. So right now I've got it well, I had a version that worked and then I broke it because I was trying to fix things and still trying to fix it. And then trying to get it to work on an FPGA, which is a, a kind of programmable circuit, like a, a processor or a circuit that you can program how it behaves electrically and therefore make the circuit embodied in this, this thing. And so that's sort of one of the steps on the way to actually making it real silicon you know, like Intel or AMD or Apple or whoever would, would do. And Google actually just, I think it was last week, announced a, a sort of project called Open Silicon, 
where they're partnering with a fabrication company that has the, the stuff to be able to fabricate chips the way that they w- would have been commercially maybe about 20 years ago. So not cutting edge in terms of manufacturing technology, but uh, you know, for somebody like teachers and educators and, and prototyping, uh, really cool to be able to maybe do that. And, um, you know, because the machines that do this stuff are cost billions of dollars uh, that, that do the cutting edge uh, modern day stuff. And, you know, to be able to, to maybe figure out how to fabricate an actual chip that embodies this thing that is just kind of a throwaway example in a textbook would be kind of cool. Um, and, you know, why? Because it's fun. And, you know, maybe I'll get to teach it to students. And I've got a student working with me on it this summer, and he's doing some more of the software side of it than the hardware. But yeah, I just want to see if I can figure it out. I mean, why not, right? Sounds like fun. So, yeah. So your official picture on your on the Wabash University website has you in Starfleet yeah. uniform. And then I looked you up on LinkedIn and you're wearing and a it suit there. Yes. Yeah. So, so, so tell me about the thought process of those decisions. <laughs> well, it actually wasn't my decision uh, is the, the, the explanation. So um, many years ago when I was teaching my first class on Star Trek, the photographer for campus was doing photos pretty yearbook. And so all of the students were coming in their shirts and ties and whatnot to get their photos taken. I was like, ah, throw on my uniform. Why not? Right. And so I've, you know, got that headshot of it. And then to my dismay is not the right word because I, I don't mind. Right. They actually changed any faculty and staff who had their picture taken at the yearbook people, all of us, they just put that as our website photo. I didn't know they were going to do that. <laughs> so then I found out that that happened and I was like, eh, whatever. And, you know, honestly, I'd completely forgotten about uh, what I had on my LinkedIn account. But yeah, I can totally go in and change that. Because um, the picture that's on my LinkedIn account, I think, is what, what my website photo was before I got this picture taken. And um, yeah, so I need to update it to, uh, to my uh, Voyager style uniform on both of them. Uh, that actually, there was a picture I had taken at, at Starbase Indy um, by the, the sci-fi photo guys, you know, that where they put backgrounds and, oh, yeah. and, and Photoshop you into a, uh, so it looks like I'm on the bridge of Voyager uh, in that picture. So yeah, I need to, need to update those. So speaking of your work at Wabash University, you brought your freshman seminar students to Starbase Indy one year. Yeah, yeah, that was uh, a long time ago, actually, goodness, mm-hmm. uh, fall of 2013. Uh, well, my God, it's been forever. Yeah, so I, uh, the college, um, you know, we all teach occasionally these freshman seminars. We call them freshman tutorials, and they're on totally different topics. And each student ends up in one of these, and they you know, submit a list of preferences and whatnot. And we, uh, but the topics for them are all completely different. And so, you know, I thought I'll do one on Star Trek. You know, there's so much to talk about that in so many different fields, you know, science and philosophy and ethics and art and history uh, that I, you know, this would be a perfect topic for one. And so, so that's what I did that semester. And the students, their textbook was basically a Netflix subscription. This is before the days of Paramount Plus. And, and I would assign them an episode before every class and that was their leading. And then we'd come to class and just argue about it. And but arguing about it from sort of an academic perspective, um, and we had an absolute blast doing so. But in that course, what I wanted to kind of end with 
which which is where Starbase Indy came into it, was sort of the like, what is Star Trek as a cultural thing? And so we watched some documentaries about, uh, so there were Trekkers 1 and 2 that Denise Crosby did. And there was another one called The Captains that uh, William Shatner did, where he was interviewing all the other captains uh, of all the other series. And, and of course, this was before Discovery uh, or uh, Strange New Worlds um, or Picard. So, uh, yeah, so we were looking at that and looking at sort of the critical reception of Star Trek, and we, we watched the episode. I had them watch Plato's Stepchildren from the original series, and then, you know, they're like, okay, great. Um, and then I'm like, yeah, well, TV stations in the South wouldn't air this. And I'm like, why? And I'm like, 1968, guys, what, <laughs> right? And, yeah, yeah. and I had to, to make them think about that. And so Starbase Indy was was sort of a part of the class. It was over our Thanksgiving break, obviously. Uh, and so I took all of the students that were still in the area or around for the break to the convention for uh, for one of the days to kind of see what Star Trek fandom is up close and personal. And, uh, you know, they, got, they went to some of the Q&As. They got to meet a couple of the actors. I think that first year we had Renee Abajinwa and... I think Armin Shimmerman. Yeah, they um, came together. The same, the yeah. Them. Yep. And um, which was really neat. Um, you know, they were both fantastic, fantastic people to talk with. And, uh, you know, were really kind of curious when I told them I had a bunch of students in tow. They, they were like, this is not something we've seen at any other convention, right? I mean, it was, it was really neat. Um, so they, I think, got out like, you know, they had seen these documentaries, like, but it, it, it gave it a tangible sense to them, like, this isn't just a thing I'm watching, like, there are people that really have, uh, you know, made this part of their life, and, and being able to meet actors, and there was um, uh, somebody there that, that did, um, you know, was a makeup artist, and could, like, turn you into a Klingon or something, and and uh, we played uh, some, uh, a couple of rounds of Artemis together, and and uh, the, you know then there was this, the the five year mission uh, guys were there that year for the and did a concert and and you know so we had a dinner together where we kind of talked about okay so what did you guys learn what did you observe but uh, and it sort of set the stage for the last two weeks of the course where they were just thinking about what Trek is and why it's important, not just as a means of entertainment, but what it says socially that we've constructed this and, and how Trek has pushed the boundaries in so many ways, um, socially and technologically. Yeah, absolutely. So the title of that section was To Be or Not to Be Liberal Arts in the 24th Century. And I thought about that and I thought, okay, but he's a math professor. Is math a right. liberal art? And yeah. And I didn't think of it at that way, but Google says it is. So explain that to me. Well, so maybe the best way to explain that would be, so Plato, the Greek philosopher, hung out in a place called the Academy, which is basically just trees and stuff. It is part in Athens, you know, from which we get the name, the Academy and, and whatnot of the word. And supposedly there was a gate to this area. And do you know what was written inscribed at the top of the gate. No idea. One thing, it was Archeometritos Medeus Sito. Let no one enter here without geometry, from which you could derive, you know, basically mathematics. So Plato considered mathematics a prerequisite for studying philosophy. 
because it teaches you how to deduce and how to think logically and how to reason in a way that is necessary when you're thinking about philosophical concepts and making arguments about, well, really anything. So is it liberal art? Yeah, exactly. For that, for the, for that precise reason, right? It, mathematics is a discipline that makes you learn how to think and how to think correctly and how to think in a deductive and systematic manner. And, um, you know, I, I think that's maybe the true core of mathematics. The fact that we can do lots of things with it and, and people think of math and they think of numbers and, and I, yeah, okay, that's part of it, but there's more to it than that. It's, it's not the core of it. I think that's why I consider a liberal, a liberal art and, uh, you know, the same way that one would consider music or, uh, literature or, uh, philosophy or ethics or, or anything like that. You need all of those things together. And, you know, for Wabash being a liberal arts college, I think it's important for those of us who are in the sciences to, to make that case to our students that our discipline and, and what you learn out of studying it is equally important to the things that you would learn in other disciplines and not as a way to knock down other disciplines, but like you need the sum totality of all of them um, in the same way that like when I'm teaching computer programming or something, you know, we have serious conversations about ethics and consequences of screwing up computer programs that, you know, somebody could die. Nobody's going to die if I make a mistake, you know, adding fractions on the chalkboard or something. But, um, but somebody could die if, if I were you know, doing it in a you know, real world kind of scenario. And so, yeah, we have to talk about all of those things together. Um, and that's what this class gave me an opportunity to do. And but also to branch outside of my own, you know, bread and butter teaching. That class was, I think, the first class where I was grading essays, right? Math teachers don't do that, right? And so I was learning a whole lot too and, and expanding my own, uh, expanding my own horizons. So you have presented at Starbase Indy for several years and mm -hmm. often your presentations involve you bringing robots or touring tumblers or uh, circuits and letting people have these experiences of, of practical learning. What has been the most fun activity you've brought to Starbase Indy? Uh, you know, thinking about it, I think the, the circuit one probably was. And I think it was, you know, the other ones have been fun, don't get me wrong, but that one just, um, uh, we were basically, you know, showing showing kids, and that's mostly who the audience was, and how to um, wire up a couple of transistors to make lights blink on or off and just you know the fact that we built it and then they could hit buttons and it does the thing and you know some of the kids were a lot younger than i was anticipating working with and they're just like wow this is you know magic but yet i was able to do it um was was really cool and and that one's been fun you know that one was fun because i, I think um a couple of those younger kids that were there you know it was they were young enough that they were it, it was them and one of their parents or or an older sibling or whatever and having to stretch myself as an educator you know day to day i work with with college age uh, men and not with six-year-olds and the way that i'm going to explain a transistor to a six-year-old cannot be the same way that i explain it to an 18 year old and it was a challenge i wasn't expecting coming in i think i figured that the kids 
will be slightly older in, in that one. But hey, why not, right? Yeah, and then, uh, uh, you know, I did, did the stuff with Kerbal Space Program last year, and right. there were a couple of kids where their parents had to, like, pry them away from the chair <laughs> to, to get them to go because it was closing time or whatever, and um, that was a lot of fun, too. So, yeah, and I'm hoping that, uh, that this year, you know, things will be able to do a little bit more, you know, more hands-on things and more in-person things, and um, I'm not sure what I want to do this year. I'll do something. We, yes, we, we can sure talk about be, that. Yes, yes, you, on you, that I, I certainly, uh, certainly want to do something and, and maybe compliment it in a way. And, and actually, yeah, maybe one other thing I could mention was from last year of getting the opportunity to work with Juniper and Tom. It just sort of serendipitously came together because you hooked us all up and, uh, you know, it, it, it was something I didn't expect that I'd, I'd be able to, to, you know, talk with a couple of engineers and, and we we put on a couple of uh, different presentations about uh, stuff and, you know, had some really interesting conversations with the audience members uh, at the end of it when they're doing questions and answers. And yeah, that was, that was really neat to be able to get to know, you know, Juniper, who, who was a star or is a star, I guess, in, 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 uh, in some sense, but maybe different than, than what many people would think of as a, as a, you know, star at, at one of these uh, shows. And yeah, it was, it was just a lot of fun. Learned a lot from her and, and from Tom and, uh, uh, you know, look forward to seeing, seeing, well, definitely Tom since he's in the area and hopefully That's Juniper at another, uh, uh, at another show or, you know, if I find myself in down in Texas again or something. Yeah. So you have been part of the Starbase Indy community for a long, long time. What do you love about Starbase Indy? I like how small scale and fan run it is. I've never been to the big, big conventions that, you know, I read about like Star Trek Las Vegas or when there's a big thing in Chicago and thousands of people are there. I've never been to any of those really big conventions, but I love just how homey and intimate Starbase Indie feels. It's not like you get, you can have real conversations with everybody that's there, you know, from just some person that found out about it on Facebook and decided to come check it out to actors like, you know, the conversations I had with many of the Star Trek actors that, that have been there or, or with Mark Okrand. I mean, that was maybe one of my favorite ones, right? Because, I mean, he's an, he's an academic, right? So we, we were talking together like two professors. Yeah. And just that there's no, it's laid back. There's not a huge rush. People aren't rushing you to get your signature or photo op so you can get the heck out of there and they can get to the next person, you know, and that's maybe criticisms I've heard of people talking about the larger conventions that, you know, sort of by necessity, it's like that. And, um, you know, maybe with some exceptions, I've heard stories of like George Decay at the signing booth is, you know, goes out of his way to be as warm and welcoming as he possibly can to everybody. And, uh, you know, I'd, I'd love to, for example, go to one of the shows, or maybe we could get Will Wheaton one year. Uh, that'd be that'd be really cool. Uh, so he can just travel his way on to Indianapolis, right? <laughs> um, yeah, he's, so, he's always been my pipe dream guest, um, right? And right. and for a lot of reasons, it's probably a pipe dream, but that doesn't mean I don't still have it. <laughs> yeah. So I mean, who knows? Yeah, but I guess I guess to to kind of sum that up, right? That's what I love about it is that it is so and fan run and while there certainly has to be some commercial component you know hotels aren't free right um, 
you know, we, you can't, nobody can just print the, the gold press latinum. I don't know. Maybe if I sell a crate of self-sealing stem bolts, we can, we can make it free next year, but uh, probably not. Right. So that, that's what I love about it. And, and that, that it's so welcoming and, and supportive of the entire spectrum of what sci-fi and other fandom is. Um, you know, for example, I met my first brony at a Starbase ending, um, a thing I didn't know existed. Um, and, and that was many years ago because the it was, it, it was, but just, you know, that, that people are, are so open and willing to accept, you know, the whole range of diversity of the human experience and, yeah. you know, whatever that means. Um, and that the convention itself in some ways embraces that and embraces sort of the educational focus and, you know, I mean, the, the convention, right, Starbase India is a 501c3, right, yeah, absolutely. Uh, which is unusual from what I understand for convention uh, running organizations. And, and I think that's great. Yeah, we went, we did embrace a different model because we looked at, you know, our site. It's very unusual for fan run conventions to bring in actors these days because the competition with Gen Con and PopCon, like all the, the big shows are bringing so many actors in. So we had to take a step back and look at what made us unique. And it was that sort of blend of the learning things and STEM and STEAM and the actors. And so that's where we got the, and our mission is celebrating Star Trek's vision of the future. Because like- And as an educator, it, mm -hmm. it's totally, you know, it 100% gels. So it gels with my heart, both as a Star Trek fan and as an educator and, and you know, as somebody who would like to make this this earth a better place and, and you know whatever small way that I can um, or this little corner of it here in central Indiana. Yeah, absolutely. That's the tagline for the podcast is talking to and about people who are inspired by Star Trek to work towards a hopeful future because we have to imagine it before we can create it and as we're creating it. Yeah, yeah that's, absolutely. It's definitely very mission focused and we're trying to make the world a better place in our teeny tiny way right but still that's how you do it a little one little bit at a time right and you know we can have a heck of a good time doing it right that and, too yes um you know and and have some some great uh great parties and celebrations and music mm -hmm. and you know all the other things that go into uh conventions you know and, and really embrace all of it and i think that you know, as an educator, it gives me a, a way to sort of show fans that maybe haven't thought about Star Trek in that sort of academic kind of way. That like, yeah, this is something that you can appreciate from many, many different angles. And, and maybe that changes their life in some way where they, you know, are inspired to study something or become something or do something wonderful because of Star Trek or because of, you know, uh, other sci-fi series or because of somebody they met or something they did at, at, a, at a convention that, you know, that small little spark is all it takes to make something magical happen. Well, thank you so much for taking the time. Yeah, this was a lot of fun. Today. Yeah, absolutely. And so, I can't wait for to see you in November. Yeah. Absolutely. See you on the Starbase. <laughs> yeah, of course. Thanks for listening to the Starbase Indie Podcast. To find more information about our live event this November, check us out at starbaseindie.org or on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. See you on the Starbase!